In the morning, Graham and Darren. This is John Fletcher. I just wanted to tell you guys I really enjoy the Grimerica show. I've just recently started listening and uh, really gotten kind of addicted to it. I, I like all the topics you guys discuss and uh, like the guests that you have on. I like that you just uh, sit back and let them talk and uh, say what they need to say. Um, I like how you know the the show has an overall positive vibe and I, I really like that. Um, I'm interested in, in dreams and dreamscapes and stuff, um, because I have these dreams in a recurring location and it's a place that I've only been to in my dreams. I've never been there in real life. Um, but the dreams are very specific and detailed to where if I were able to, I could draw out a map of the building that I go to in my dreams. Um. And each dream kind of adds on to the one before it to where now I, I have like a very specific, detailed uh, idea of the the outlay of this place. And one day I just, I would like to discuss it with you and see if there's anybody else out there that has dreams uh, in a recurring location that they've only been to in dreams. Um, I don't know, I haven't read much about it, but I would like to find out more. Uh, but mainly I wanted to get on here and tell you guys that I enjoy the show and to keep up the great work in the morning. America. Again, if they don't have our engine, they don't have any chance of making it success. There's a lot of flying cars, as you know, where they're where they take the wings off, or they fold the wings back, or they fold the, fold the wings up. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. Uh, a couple days late. Better, how's the saying go? Late than never. Better late than never. Uh, we're going to be talking to Dr. Paul Moeller a little bit later about flying cars and such. Uh, and rotary engines that make those flying cars fly. That's right. Uh, but first, as always, I, Graham, I like flying cars before it was cool, Dunlop. <laughs> Actually, that's kind of a trend. I think everything before it's cool, actually. Yeah? Yeah. <clears throat> You're a real I'm just, trendsetter. I'm just kidding. Real trendsetter. So uh, how you been? Uh, good. Yeah, a little sore. A little sore? Yeah. The fucking Should we tell everybody building. what's been going on? Sure. So I don't know if we're just really dedicated to this podcast or we're just idiots, but Darren's wife found us a little portable sound booth. Uh, in a sort of like a an auction kind of thing it was about a town about a half hour away so darren and i went to take a look at it and we made an offer on it and we bought this portable sound booth for like four hundred dollars yeah it was uh well i guess it used to be a music shop out there and they had built this thing to use as their recording studio and really what it is though is a commercial freezer can turned into uh a studio so they say it's supposed to be portable. Really, it's just, it was glued together like a bomb shelter, basically. It could have been, actually, maybe it was supposed to be a bunker, too, because PL it could survive a fucking war. Yeah, it was ridiculously difficult to get it apart. Took four of us. Five guys, four, five four, guys. five guys that are in construction. <laughs> to fucking pry this back. thing apart and lift it on a picker six, truck. Six hours, and then we used a crane. <laughs> 
a crane to get it into Darren's garage. So basically we're resetting it up in Darren's garage now. So we're going to have a fully, it's like a full room, 10 by 10 rooms. So we're going to have our own studio in Darren's garage so we can get out of the house and into our own little garage. So. Good to have friends with cranes. Yeah. Sure makes and life a lot easier. Yeah. Crowbars and cranes. And the roller system. How'd you like my roller setup? Yeah, I was pretty worried about delivering all these panels to your garage, but we just rolled them down on these concrete rollers. Yeah, very good. We could build a pyramid, motherfucker. I, I know, that's what I was going to say to everybody, is you think now, all of a sudden, you can build pyramids. Well, you know what I do think I can build? It's just about the season. We got to get in touch with... Uh, <laughs> the crop circle? Yeah. Who do we got to get in touch with? What's his name again? Fuck. Matt? Matt? No. Matt. Is it Matt? Yeah, it's Matt. There's a bunch of Matts in my... In, America world right now. A couple of Matt's have been emailing me and Matt's coming up on the show. And then Matt, the previous guest. So anyways, uh, we want to thank everybody for donating because it's helping with stuff like our new sound booth and the monthly expenses that we have here. So we want to thank people for chipping in. It really does help. Matthew Williams. Matthew Williams. See, that was right. Matt. So yeah, thanks for your, for your donations. It really does help. We don't have any any commercials, any sponsorship, nothing. Just straight chatting. Yeah, yeah. Donations have been down lately. We actually had a first uh, unsubscribers too, which yeah, is too bad. Gonna happen. That's, that's gonna happen. Yeah. So sorry. You sure it wasn't like a credit card? Because I know that I, I used to subscribe to. Yeah, I know. There's a at least Dreamland, and I didn't resubscribe when my credit card expired. So. Oh yeah, I maybe bet you that's that a problem could, for, for shows, it. right? I bet you lose a lot of those people that just don't bother coming back. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. Fucking uh, hit up grimerica.ca slash support. Help us uh, cover the new studio. The latest acquisition. Move the set of the house. Gives my wife the spare bedroom back. Yep. Uh, and we get a little bit more space in our kind of our own. Our yeah, own, own little area. Plus, yeah. we might want to rent it out, too. So if there is anybody in Calgary, we might just be able to rent that out as a podcast studio for people. Or a vocal booth. You think so? Yeah, I guess. Come eh? and sing. Yeah. Karaoke kind of type thing. No, not karaoke. (laughs) Not karaoke. So what do you got for me, buddy? It's been a while. Yeah, well, I want to say, just to give a shout out to the Float Life guys. Your your wife uh, did the float float tanks it's like basically oh, yeah, she had a blast they since, gave her a deal too thanks for the deal boys yeah it's isaac newbert and dustin ryan they they run this uh they open up this new company in calgary they've got like five tanks i think there's music in there and their own little shower space they've done a really really professional awesome job and they're open like from 7 a.m to 11 so basically anytime you want to float basically it's like sensory deprivation super good to relaxation pain it's good for all kinds of stuff. So I'll put that that in the show notes. But if there's anybody, you know, from Calgary or Edmonton coming down or whatever, check it out. It's, these guys are great, and uh, it's a really good setup they got. Yes, sir. I haven't made it down yet. I mean to. You just play around in there anyway, so. Yeah, but still, it's fun. Maybe the music will help. Yeah, or put on like a Monroe Institute I'll meditation some doors. or something. Hey, I had a, I, I haven't mentioned it. I got a, I got an email speaking of the Monroe Institute. Like if you were going to play that, 
did you did I talk about the warning? The warning from the Monroe Institute yet? No. This is from Mike. He says, Graham, love the show. I heard an interview from an instructor of the Monroe Institute last year. I was very excitedly and went home and told my sister that I'd found a great place for psychic training just two hours from where we he- live here in Virginia. My bubble was burst when she told me to stay clear of the place because it was not what it appeared to be. The Monroe Institute is supposed to be controlled by the U.S. government that they put in their meditation recordings, some type of subliminal post-hypnotic suggestion that could be activated in people later when needed. The source of this information came from a friend of hers who is a very reliable psychic teacher here in Virginia and has contacts with many people who could know this information. Having lived my whole life around Washington, D.C., I know how pervasive this government is and I can believe it. Feel free to publish this information. If it is true, someone else will confirm it. Keep up the good work. That's Mike B. of Virginia. Thanks, Mike B. First I've ever heard of that. Kind of scary. Yeah. Nothing scares me. No? You're okay with that? You're pretty brave. I am? Yeah. You're pretty brave, too. Thanks, buddy. I've got some feedback from uh, Mike. It's actually not feedback, but I finally got around to reading his orb sighting in the last episode, I think it was. Oh, his name's Mark, actually. And he uh, he emailed again. You want to hear this? Sure. This is uh, the orange orb sighting from Swan River. Hey, Graham, I thought I would tell you what happened to me. This is pretty weird, and I can understand if you don't think I'm telling you the truth. It's kind of... Never good when it starts out like that. (laughs) (laughs) I was home alone Saturday and about 2 a.m. You posted up the latest episode on iTunes. So I downloaded. I was listening to the episode and started having second thoughts of what I really saw. I was thinking of what Darren said about lanterns and the odds of people playing tricks. I know what I saw and what it did and yet still don't totally believe it, what I witnessed. But I know what it wasn't. I was thinking, what are the odds of me going outside at any time of night to be set up for a Chinese lantern joke? So at about 2.30 a.m., I decided to go outside and do some star watching. I got outside and back onto my deck chair and started looking around to what was a clear sky with no clouds and no wind. After about three minutes, to my surprise, I looked up to my right as a glowing orange orb was approaching from the west, traveling east. It was about the same size as before and at about 1,000 feet above. I watched it cast, I watched it coast at a medium speed across the sky. After about one minute, I then remembered I had an LED flashlight in my pocket. So I took it out and flashed it on and off about four times in a row. The orb did nothing to acknowledge me. And as it stopped directly in front of me about one kilometer away, it remained stationary. And after a minute, its light slowly died until it blinked off and disappeared. So how crazy is that? And how would anyone know when I was going outside at 3.20 a.m.? Oh, actually, it was 3.20. I said 2.30 originally. A.m. instead of the last time I saw it, which was around 12.30 a.m. Was this thing waiting for me to go outside just so I could witness it? Tell me what you think. Also, I have an iPhone. I was wondering if you know if there's a good app for night use with the camera. Because right now, if I take a pic, it just is washed out and unrecognizable. If I could. If I could record video for this, then my buddy will see what I've witnessed and have real proof. That's from Mark. Thanks, Mark. The only thing I think about that, it, it sounds a bit like the way it disappeared. It sounds like a flare. But a flare? Yeah, maybe <sighs> just, you know. What do you think? I think it's a Chinese lantern. <laughs> At three in the morning? <laughs> yeah. 
No, you don't. No, I don't know. Um, well, he was listening to the... Our episode. No, he was listening to the episode where I read his story out. Oh. Not the Orange Orb episode. But if any, if people are... If they've had Orange Orb sightings, Orange or Red specifically, we did do that episode with Terry Ray on the Orange Orb. So search back in our in our free back catalog and you'll that's a that was a great episode. Yeah, that was about fifteen or twenty ago, must have been. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that is. The orbs are uh there seems to be something there. Yeah. Chinese lanterns. No, I think maybe a plane or something, right? Or no, see, I, yeah, that's what the skeptics would say. Like the hardcore skeptics would say it's a plane traveling towards you. So or it looks car like it's stopped or whatever, someplace. right? But you know what? People know this. People or a car know these. coming around a corner someplace. Going up the freeway and it's, you know, low clouds. Or... Oh, I don't think so. No? No. I kind of, I'm kind of more of one that, that, Especially when people live near airports and they see it. No, I'm not all in. It's just, I believe that people know the difference between planes and and UFOs a lot of times. (laughs) (sighs) So what do you want next? Uh, Synchro? Got any synchronicities? I, I do, actually. Some listeners have been sending them in. I just gotta figure out which one this is. Huh. I want a good skull from a synchronicity Graham reads it out, then Jeremiah give it to me Hey, don't you please read it low, yeah, yeah All right, so this is from uh, Tim, Tim D., Hello, Grimerica. First off, thank you and Darren for creating such an outstanding show. You and the guests have opened the doors to the war on consciousness. I had been too distracted to paying attention to that. Your enthusiasm and good-natured style is such a winning combination. Now then, I wanted to convey a quick synchronicity. While it's not exactly going to change the world, I think it's pretty cool. My wife and I were watching TV, and as a commercial break started... She turned to me and said she wants to discuss turning off our wireless router at night because of the great unexplained effects of Wi-Fi. No sooner than she completed her sentence, a commercial started for a wireless service provider, and the very first line is, wireless is awesome. Even an atheist, in recovering perhaps, such as herself, did a double take at the TV and proclaimed, how blatant is that? Thanks again for your show and keep up the great work. I'm waiting for more Gray America t-shirts to go on sale. Let us know when you order more. Take off, eh? That was from Vic. Actually, it, the email was from Tim, but his sign signed off as Vic. Vic D. Fuck, I think people have already paid for t-shirts. What? Really? <laughs> yeah. And they haven't got any? Yeah. Well, I've got some on order. Maybe Gary. Gary K. Oh, Gary Kosh. Yeah, I wanted to mention. He's in Germany, I think, or something. Ooh. I think he yeah he, he thanked <laughs> us for reading out uh, that thing on the last uh, show. He's uh, a subscriber. Can I mention something about what uh, about this? I had I had a very similar one. I rate it first. Sure. Four and a half. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You're harsh. Five. You're still harsh. That's okay. No, I mean everyone can't be up there at eight or nine. No. 
Okay. Otherwise, rate mine along with it then. Okay. Rate yours. Yeah. So normally when I do show notes, I don't watch TV or anything like that. Right. I actually don't watch cable much at all. I usually put on some music or something on the Apple TV. So I was doing show notes this time. I thought, you know, I'm just going to play in the background. Just one of those shows like, uh, maybe hangar one or like UFO files or like monsters and something or other. So, uh, I was trying to do the show notes and I put on the TV and I looked down the show notes and I was doing the remote viewing one. It was project Stargate. I looked at, I was like, Oh, project Stargate. Yeah. I look at the TV. The show I had was just going to read the info on the show. I was going to play in the background. It was like monsters and mysteries of America or something like that. Project Stargate right there. I never, I never do that. I never put the TV on. What are the chances I was doing the show notes for Project Stargate and Project Stargate was right there in that show. I was just, and I didn't know about it. Same time, right then, right at the start of the show. Huh. That's not bad, eh? That's not bad. Sick. Oh. Point four two, because it involves the show. Sweet. Thanks, buddy. Hey, man, I do what I can. What do you got I next? I got another one from Aiden. I might as well just <laughs> I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web and Aaron is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet I can't help but laugh those are like two of the best <laughs> jingles ever those are jingles from our listeners so thanks guys that's just fucking hilarious this is you guys are looking for listener synchronicities and the like, so here's one of mine. I'm not sure if this falls into the category of premonition dreams or what, but here it is. Darren's probably going to call us a ripple stick, and we'll get him to explain that later. But this Darren will appreciate this one too, or he'll actually be disgusted by it. I had a dream that I was looking out my bedroom window to see an Irish politician, Luke Flanagan, if you're interested. His nickname is Ming. He was opening up my gate and walking up to my front door and he rang the doorbell. That's actually all that happened in the dream, but it's interesting because that day I was actually woken up by a policeman who rang the doorbell with a warrant to arrest my flatmate. Oh, fuck. I wasn't supposed to say his name. Can you edit that? (laughs) (laughs) Can you edit that out? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fuck. I'll just bleep it. Can you do that? You got the timestamp? Yeah. Well, I'm going to know because I'm going to be editing out all this mess. Are you? Well, not all of it, but some of it. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so who rang the doorbell? With a warrant to arrest my flatmate who wasn't there. Is he from Ireland then? Yeah. Yeah, that's what they say in Ireland, flatmates. Who wasn't there, and he said he just had to call to the station to sort it out. So where it gets even more interesting, hard to believe, he knows, (laughs) is that two or three days later after my flatmate didn't respond to the cops, they busted into my house and busted my flatmate for weed. The annoying thing is that the warrant was over a car-related fine, but they nabbed him for weed after searching the house. Bastards. So my dream predicted the law coming to my house, but even deeper than that, the politician who was in my dream, Ming Flanagan, is the only guy here in Ireland who's been campaigning for weed to be legalized in recent times. 
So even though the warrant was for something car related, the dream had something weed and government related in it. I'm not sure whether that's a synchronicity premonition dream or just mere coincidence, but it made me exclaim, oh, oh, when I realized. Hope that fits the bill. Anyways, enjoyed the last show immensely. Keep up the fine work. P.S. I know my name is in the email, but in the unlikely event this gets read, could you just call me Ferdinand in case my flatmate listens and totally realizes that I told his story of getting busted with my real name? <laughs> nice one. Out <clears throat> of boy, Grub. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a uh, ripple stick for sure. Yeah. Crazy, eh? Yeah. But it, no, it's not even a ripple stick because it's, <laughs> I think it's more of a weird precog dream thing than a ripple stick. Because a ripple stick would be more direct, I think. Yeah. It would be, you wouldn't have to associate it. It would be just like in your face. So when are we going to, you know, be able to not get busted for, weed anymore eh? isn't it crazy that that's still going on i guess we're pretty fortunate where we live i wonder what yeah i wonder what it's like in ireland hopefully buddy's okay yeah there's some places so i can chop your hand off or no something. they're not that they're not that bad in ireland i smoked a doobie in ireland a couple of them you know what we used to do can i tell you they used to hollow out a cigarette with a little metal thing and then roll up this little hash in the l- tiny, thin little strip and pop it down the middle. And then you could be in a bar smoking, passing around a cigarette. Cause they, they, they share like cigarettes like that. You're right in the middle of a bar. Oh, yeah. imagine that. I'm not a big hash guy. Never have been. No, I know it's been a while for me since, you know, anything. <laughs> So what do you want now? What do you got? Uh, I got uh, an interesting kind of uh, shamanic uh, shamanic kind of tale. Uh, and the UFO quote of the week, if you want to try and surprise me. I almost forgot about that. Surprise. At about two o'clock, I saw the first of many strange lights in the sky. The vast majority were in formation, usually quarter line, and all appeared on the port side. Many were in groups of three, some in groups of five or six. They appeared and disappeared instantly at the same speed a computer screen operates. Suddenly, one of these objects appeared at close range on our port bow and at low elevation. It was disc-shaped and considered and consisted of a very bright light with black windows running around the whole side which was visible to us it maintained perfect station on us for at least 15 minutes i scanned the object with binoculars attempting to see into the windows but saw nothing i counted the black windows and recalled there were about two dozen of them they were very large and close together and completely black although the body of the object glowed very brightly it didn't prevent me from looking directly at it the object appeared more oval shaped than round and then suddenly it was gone there was no sound made at any time. And that is George R. McFarland, commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, from the Canadian destroyer HMCS Iroquois in May 1952. Nice. Another good UFO quote. 
you gonna run out soon? No. Never, buddy. Never? Never. Alright, let's hear your shamanic tale. I don't know if that's a, a good category for it. Um, um, I'll have to just find the attachment here for this. This is an interesting one, though. So, this is from Michael, Michael N. He says, hey, Graham, I heard on your last podcast you're looking for unusual experiences people have had. Mine qualifies. So, just before I forget, yeah, email in your lucid dreams or your trip reports, UFO sightings. Uh, synchronicities, any of that kind of stuff. We like to try and be a little interactive with people that are listening. It's, uh, I don't know, I think it's kind of a fun part of the show. Yeah, it seems to have taken over the intro. Yeah. So uh, he says, mine qualifies. First, let me backtrack and tell you how much I enjoy the podcast. Listening to you and Darren is something I look forward to every week. The laid-back vibe, the willingness to let the guests talk, and most of all, the attitude of attention and respect you guys bring is very appealing. It feels like you're there to learn also. Keep it up. You're doing good. I first sent the missive I'm attaching to to Lon Strickler at Phantoms and Monsters. It appeared on his blog. I don't know how you feel about using something used, but I'm putting it out there if you're interested. Yeah, we're interested. I don't really care about that. This experience was an important one in my life, and now I'm nearing retirement. I'm using my time to explore some of the more esoteric aspects of our existence. I've been doing some shamanic traveling and have had some interesting and scary experiences. And because of your musings on lucid dreaming, I've been attempting to do it myself, sadly with no success. But I am going to keep trying. All the best to you and Darren, and keep up your good and important work. And uh, this is the attachment from Lon's um, Phantoms and Monsters, which we've heard talked about quite a bit. Are you are you trying to play a clip? No. Okay. <laughs> it's not plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Unfortunately, I'm reading it. <clears throat> the year was 1983 or 84. I was in my early 20s and was working for a brokerage firm in downtown Manhattan. The situation was this. I was at the end of an arduous work week. The computers at our office had been crashing all week, which would instantly send us back to the 1930s. And they're already back in the 80s oh that must have been challenging <laughs> as we had to take all of our stock orders by hand and transmit them to the exchange floor much stress and mayhem involved it was finally friday after 6 30 and we got to go home i had a two-hour commute before me by subway bus and then a two-mile walk to get to my house i didn't relish thinking about it i was dog tired and it was drizzling after a long subway ride from the World Trade Center to Queens, I got on the eastbound N24 bus, which would take me into Nassau County. It was late, and there were a few passengers. I sat alone in the back of the bus reading Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Patton, or Peyton. Peyton, Patton. I remember it was a book my mother had recommended to me since her taste in reading material had always been superior to mine, and I'd gladly taken it up. The experience began as the bus was turning onto Jamaica Avenue. I had just read the last few pages of the book and it affected me deeply. It's funny, I don't remember any of the specifics of the story. What I do remember are the feelings of sorrow, hope, and compassion that welled up in me as I finished. I also remember lifting my head to look out the rain-wet window and felt myself connect with the world in a profound way. I know it sounds trite and cliché, 
to say everything became one, but that's exactly what happened. All the feelings I was harboring from the book seemed to meld inside me and then in an instant expand, connecting me with the bus, with the road, with the lamppost. I could even feel the rain as it fell out of the sky. I looked out the back window and felt myself part of the buildings, and I imagined that if I wanted to, I could just let myself go and meld with it all. This state brought in a deep feeling of peace and wonder, and yet the oddest part of this was the realization that it was not unique to my experience. I had been here before. My thoughts upon entering the state had been, I'm back. I knew on an intrinsic level that I had been in the state before, although I had no conscious memory of it ever happening. It was like a blindfold being taken from your eyes and seeing the dawn for the first time. And then it faded. I slowly came back into myself. I was feeling deeply, soulfully quiet, and I had tears in my eyes. <clears throat> I've often thought of this experience, and it's one of the reasons I've started shamanic journeying. Because of it, I have no doubt there is an existence slash perception slash knowledge that lies outside everyday life. I know that to seek to understand this thing is an important part of why I'm here, and I never forget that the gateway to this state for me was hope, sorrow, and compassion. Bingo, bango. Nice, eh? Yeah. I kind of have... through the veil. Yeah. I just, I, I can't help but wonder what, what triggers that, right? Of course, like finishing the book and having that stressful... Drum solos. What? Drum solos. Yeah? I don't get it. Elton John? I don't get it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a little different than that. They I each their own. But I have had these weird... Sometimes for some people, maybe it's a smell or... Do you ever have memories of... see out the window or the way the sun hits you? Or... Do you ever have memories of uh, something that, that you don't feel like is from this lifetime at all? Or like a f memory of a feeling or... Do you ever Maybe, have that? Yeah, probably. I have these weird memories where I feel like I'm in a place like that I don't know. It's not a place that I know of. I mean, it could be from a dream or something like that, but it's a memory of a feeling of being super content and peaceful. It's almost like, uh, it's almost like from a different lifetime or a different universe or something. I can't quite picture it, but it reminds me of what he was saying when he felt like he was back, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about, yeah, no. Don't know about what, the multiple universe thing? Or feeling. Memory of a feeling? No, I maybe dreams more than anything. I don't think I've maybe, but maybe the dreams are the same thing. Yeah, yeah, see, it could be like deja vu of a dream, something yeah, like that. exactly. I have this like repeated sort of thought or cityscape scene. And I think that's from a dream where I'd have like a recurring dream of like this sort of cityscape. Like when Uber Kevin passes and when Kevin Costner swims down to the underwater city in water world. I really, I've totally forgot about that. Does he Is do he? that? Yeah. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, but that's not like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's about yeah. it. I did. Yeah, man. I uh, just want to thank uh, Paul Mulder, Paul Mulder, for coming on. Yeah, hopefully uh, we'll have a flying car. Yeah, it's super exciting. 
I still don't see it coming in our lifetime, but hopefully. Yeah, I think it will. Yeah, yeah it's there now. The electronics are, are the what? Like, what are you saying? Like the the technology with the electronics and all that is so different from when he first developed it, right? And the engines have come a long way. I think he's going to start producing these engines. It's going to be great. Hopefully, the Google people team up with them. Yeah, hopefully, somebody. Google flying car. Yeah. Google molar. How about just a? How about just one of those engines on your backpack? Could that just like? Can they create jetpacks with those little guys? <laughs> Maybe two of them. Yeah. Wasn't he talking about? Uh, actually, we should just wait until the outro. People just be dropping like flies, <laughs> <laughs> like when birds fly into the window. Yeah. So, uh, is there anything else we got to mention here? Oh, I do need to mention something else. I'm going to Vancouver. Uh, I'm going to go to Cloudhead Studios and try out their their new demo for their game called uh, Gallery of the Six Elements. Full on, uh, full on uh, Valve Vive headset. That'll be fun. That'll be good. And I'm also going to go to uh, George Norian Friends. Oh, that'll be fun too. And that's uh, George Norian Friends is an interactive show hosted by Coast to Coast AM host George Nori with a wide array of guests, including Richard Dolan. We all know who he is, and other guests talking about conspiracy theories, ghosts, the paranormal, Bigfoot, and much more to be announced. Each guest will have the opportunity to meet George and his guests at a special trade fair live at the Hard Rock Casino in Vancouver, which is kind of actually Coquitlam. Anyways, uh, it's this Saturday, June 6th at 8 o'clock. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be pretty good, so I'm going to go with, uh, I think, my sister and a couple friends and uh, meet some people there, so I'll be the one in the America shirt. The short, stocky guy in the white Grimerica shirt, if anybody wants to... Mustard stays. Chat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like mustard, buddy. Oh, it's delicious. <sighs> All right, guys, enjoy the chat with uh, with Moeller, and uh, go visit Graham. We oh. should mention one more thing. Did we? No, the remote viewing? Uh, we'll save that for the other. Okay. Enjoy the chat. All right. Okay, guys, in America tonight, we are going to be chatting with Dr. Paul Moeller about uh, Skycar, flying cars. This should be a good one. We've had a, quite a few listeners, I think. Um, uh, what is the, whatever the Moeller Skycar, Moeller International, put out a tweet that they were entertaining interviews and stuff like that. And I think I, we must have had 20 or 30 listeners mention it or tweet it at us or so a lot of people are looking forward to this one how yeah, about you I, hey. I think you're a sky car fanatic from way back eh? yeah me too yeah i remember uh 
I remember seeing this, uh, his sky car back in, well, we'll talk about it more in the podcast in the early 2000s, I believe, when I was working for an aerospace company. So yeah, as Darren said, we've got uh, Dr. Paul Moeller here. He's president and chair of uh, Moeller International, basically makers of the sky car. And Moeller International is making new concepts of aviation a reality. Dr. Moeller's received like 43 patents, including a fundamentally new form of powered tilt aircraft working on contracts with NASA, DARPA, NRL, and many others who are deploying unmanned vehicles. He's also the founder and CEO of SuperTrap, who is recognized for high power engine silencing systems. And he developed a Davis Park, Davis Research Park, which is a 38 acre research uh, complex in Davis, California. Dr. Moeller holds a master's uh, in engineering and a PhD from McGill and was professor of mechanical and aeronautical engineering at UFC of Davis. And we just found out he also spent a few years in our city of Calgary, which seems to be a little trend with some of our recent guests. So anyways, uh, it's super cool to have you here, Paul. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate the chance to talk. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm excited. Like I was saying, I was working for this. Uh, I might as well just start with my, my story of my molar story because I was working for a helicopter overhaul company in, in Richmond, uh, British Columbia there. Um, and, uh, we, we do all kinds of turbine engines, overhauling turbine engines. And somehow the sky car, sky car came into my consciousness. I can't remember who told me about it or how I found it, but my boss and I were, were chatting quite a bit. And this is when you had the, I guess it was the 400 and the 200 out. And I was all excited. I I think that was probably the early two thousands. And, you know, you had my imagination just going wild. I was thinking about all these this need that we're going to have for little fixed based operations, little FBOs everywhere, kind of little mini airports and people would be, you know, flying in and out of those things. And uh, yeah, you really got me excited. And that was a while ago. So you've been, you've been developing this for uh, a couple decades now. <laughs> yeah. A lot more than a couple decades, but we were incorporated in uh, 1983 as uh, as a company spinoff company, really, as you mentioned earlier, I had a muffler company, one of my, you call it hobbies, I suppose, but it's not that. It was obviously a way to make capital to keep to keep this other business, my, my flying car business running. So I got in a lot of other things like real estate and production of the super trap, which I think a lot of people in Canada might recognize, anybody who's ever ridden a motorcycle seriously for in a competitive role would have run into our product. But uh, it, these these are things I as I I also developed a bunch of unmanned vehicles for the military again, primarily just raise capital to keep my sometimes hobby going as you might call it just because that's the, the love of my life really to make this happen. Right. So so when did you actually get into like the first real cool looking prototypes that you had like the the sky cars themselves? How long have, have those been around now? Well, when I was doing my PhD at McGill University, I, I graduated from there in 1963, and, and during that process there, I had a, I had plenty of other research, but during the evenings, I was doing model work of the kind of device that I was aiming to develop. So immediately upon getting a uh, assistant professor position at McGill University, I'm sorry, at UC Davis, I started building this full-size version of that in my garage, and ultimately, I guess it was like three years later, I actually flew it before 
before the press at the University of California. So that was our first flight then, was 1967. Wow. We got a lot of... That was the same year of the moon? It was the moon 6069. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was covered around the world. We had the you know, front pages of South American newspapers, and it got a lot of attention. It wasn't, hmm. uh, you know, it wasn't... It wasn't anything like what we do now. We didn't get any higher than about three or four feet off the ground, and it was pretty much like a bucking bronco. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't have any, uh, you know, electronic stabilization because these kind of vehicles, once they get anywhere a distance from the ground, they have to, we have to bring into play a lot of electronics for stabilization. Yeah, you know, it's a computerized brain because yeah. the human can't really fly a vehicle that isn't inherently stable. You really can't have, I mean, a helicopter is stable partly because the rotor, the effects of the rotor stabilizes it. But other than that, the, that average vehicle like that is really unstable. Huh. Which is not, which so, is not something you want when you're in an aircraft, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So, so the computer's way better at uh, <clears throat> monitoring that and stabilizing it as you go, kind of compared to like a human hand. Yeah, I think about the fact that I spent something between 10 and $15 million on, on electronics, uh, hardware, and software over the years to get to the point where we could have a utilized brain, and now you can buy that brain for uh, $500, or at least a, a reduced version of it for $500. So it's a different world, and it makes what we're doing a lot more practical, because now, now we've got the cost of things down to the point where, at some point, people able to afford this as a as a second vehicle yeah so are you is the technology for i'm looking at your website here and you you've got your sky car your aerobot the firefly and the neura 200 is is all this technology based on that kind of rotary engine yeah yeah that that is that is absolutely key i recognized when i came to the university of california in davis it was the year really when there was some notoriety about this rotary engine developed by a Dr. Felix Wankel in Germany. And I, I immediately recognized that this is almost like a gift from God because huh. the technology of this engine was so well suited to, it's like a, a very low cost, very compact turbine engine, which cost, of course, a hundred times more. So I was the first person to bring uh, rotary engines into North America. Actually, they were in Germany. I, I brought him in under the educational format. And eventually, when I decided to form my company, one of my directors went to Europe and paid him back in his, in his freight, which was illegal, by the way, because <laughs> there was a... The Curtis Wright had the worldwide rights for aviation use of the rotary engines for many years. So they wouldn't allow it to come into the United States. That's how I got my start with the rotary engine. Isn't that what, uh, like, the Mazda? R7s the R or whatever? R7. The, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's that principle. Our engine, of course, is uh, where the Mazda engine may produce a little less than a horsepower per pound, we, three horsepower per pound. So it's a, we've come a long ways in taking it to the form that it needs to be to power a flying car. People don't realize a flying car is a little like a hummingbird. It's got a tremendous metabolism. Uh, it, it has to be very light. Of course, the hummingbird has high metabolism, has hollow bones, simple reason of being very structurally sound with a lightweight, mm -hmm. and of course it has a few million years head start on me with its brain. <laughs> so we, we have to replicate that electronically. That's really what we've done, and that's why we're in a position to replicate the hummingbird. 
Wow, that's interesting. So, so what's the rotor? Why is just for people that aren't familiar with that type of engine, and especially as like a propulsion system like that, what's so special about that over just well, you your can, generic? In, inherently, you can package an awful lot of power in a small package just to start with, regardless of what we've done with it. Right. And it's round like a turbine, so we can hide it in the hub of the fan. We okay. don't have to have gearbox or anything like that, which is, you know, half the helicopter failures are due to gear train failures. So you want to eliminate that. Uh, and it, it's very compact. It's got an incredibly low rotating inertia, which means that we can have the uh, fan accelerate very quickly, and that's a way of providing control, very simple control. So there's a lot of things about the rotary that just are absolutely unique. Uh, without the rotary, I, do, I don't have a future. Right. Is that something that a lot of people are still going down, or is that like, I'm not a big uh, car guy, but like, is, I don't think there's a lot of cars like that. Is that is that engine used in a lot of other places? No, most of there's been a few prototype companies, Mercedes-Benz, et cetera, but there's only two cars put in production, the Mazda and the NSU. And the NSU failed in Europe, and the Mazda didn't exactly fail, but it it uh, never got uh, as good fuel economy as the piston engines that was used primarily in sports cars. Uh, but we've we've changed that with many patents, as, as you said earlier. We've been able to get around a lot of the uh, limitations and advance the technology. And really, everything we're doing is totally dependent on the engine. I remember, I remember a friend of mine had the RX-7, I think, and, and I thought the big, the big thing about that engine back then was you could redline, like the redline was so high, you could really get it, get it revving. Yeah, and you got there very fast. The engine would rev very quickly, and that is exactly why it's important for us, because if you want to they control the aircraft's tilt, you want the engine to adjust so quickly that it stops the tilt before it really gets started, and the rotary can do that. Nothing else can, so it's, it's just one factor, and it's attractive for what we're doing so i guess like i mean ultimately if like electric could be perfected somehow that would be even better right because you've got that like just bang on and off sort of would that be i guess yeah, is, is alternative? Enough, so we're still faster with the rotary than any electrical motor it's amazing it, it, you know i don't know how technically up to speed some of your listeners are but the rotor of a rotary engine is going one third of the output speed of the shaft uh, so, in effect, the inertia is one-ninth of what it would be for the same mass. And that means that, uh, you know, a electric motor still has a pretty heavy armature. And so it can accelerate quickly, but not nearly as quickly as our rotary engine can. Huh. What about uh, other, other energy sources, like if, uh, I guess, sort of nuclear or things like that would that be an option if that ever became you know something that was readily available would that be like i guess like is that make it better yeah, that probably won't, it just won't happen in my lifetime it's it's uh, it's just there's too many elements to it that have potential problems yeah that'd be but bad for the maybe, war on terror flying <laughs> nuclear cars anything yeah it's it's completely off the wall i think at some point and again i don't believe it would be in my lifetime that they will discover uh, the, the laws of gravity, which, by the way, are the least understood of the, any of the physical laws in today's <laughs> world. Yeah. If you understand that, then you're going to have an anti-gravity kind of capability, which apparently I would guess some of these UFOs may have already discovered. Yeah, I was going to, I mean, I was itching to ask you about that, too. I didn't know if that was something you'd, you'd want to talk about, but 
because you've worked in you know propulsion and and these these uh, companies developing you know some of our leading edge technologies for for flying cars and and stuff, I wondered. What do you think about all these UFO sightings? Do you pay attention to them? Do you do you wonder what the propulsion systems were like? You know, I, I had a fairly profound sighting of a of a polygonal shaped, like a dodecahedron shaped craft spinning around and rotating and in, in half and all this stuff. <clears throat> so um, we yeah, talk I we talk about that a quite a bit. As you describe it, it sounds like a fairly legitimate hearing. Well, actually, as an engineer, when I got into this subject, of course, the first thing I wanted to know was the propulsion system, because as I said, that's everything. You can build any airframe, you can put electronics in it, but you still have to get the kind of the power output and a small weight that makes this all possible. So I studied the propulsion systems, and uh, I believe I came up with some indication of how they work, not that I could replicate it. Uh, And the way we did that was pretty simple. We looked at the physiological effects around people when one of these vehicles are close to people or to machines, it has effects on these machines, and that's, that's documented. So mm. there we have some direct evidence of, of the effects of these vehicles on the environment, and then you say, so like well, well, what you would normally do is reverse engineer those effects and see what the propulsion system could be. And I worked with Stanford Research Institute, and we were able to, in theory, reverse engineer. We certainly didn't get to the point that we could ever replicate it. But we know how big or how strong the electromagnetic field has to be. We know what that electromagnetic field would have on people at various levels, and we also know what it would have on an automobile, for example. So wow. We were able to prove pretty precisely exactly how powerful the electromagnetic field is. We just don't know how we would ever do that, how we created that powerful field. But it was it was interesting. It had some amazing uh, characteristics that were identical to the the observed effects on people when one of these vehicles get close to them. Can you speculate at all of what you, you must have gone through a bunch of scenarios about what that propose, what it could be? Well, first off, my guess is they have, you know, they wouldn't have to be that many years ahead of us to have, uh, you know, control of a t- maybe even cold fusion, for example. I don't know how much you've ever heard about cold fusion, but even if they had, you know, a, a thousand years ahead of us or whatever, they would certainly have ability to generate large amounts of power in small packages through the process of something like cold fusion, which is which is a safe alternative to hot fusion. But they haven't got there yet. Yeah, but I've that, heard isn't it wasn't it Lockheed or Skunk Works or something that they said that they said in ten within ten years. Yeah, they all believe it's coming and, and probably will they're use you wrong by quite a number of years. But when you have that then you have this huge power capability. Once you have this high power capability, and I'm talking about very large amounts of power in a small package, then you can do all kinds of things like strip the electrons from the air around you, and once you do that, then you have the control of that as a propulsion means. You can do a lot of things. That's one of the reasons you probably see these vehicles glowing, because you start stripping electrons from the air, you end up with getting different different colors. So there's a lot of that kind of thing uh, that are out there that, uh, that really seem to absolutely within our laws, except we don't have the advanced ability to, to utilize, uh, utilize them. We're still pretty ignorant in details. What's your thought about, about the breakaway civilization theory, like that there actually is a, you know, a group of humans that have uh, created this technology, they're, they're a few decades ahead of you know, the white world, uh, the, 
the commercial world and they're actually responsible for a lot of these, you know, UFO sightings? Well, I think it's possible that the one vehicle in particular, the triangular-shaped vehicle, yeah. might, might be, uh, I read enough about it, it might be, but uh, I know that, the, I, I believe, and again, I can only believe because of the sources of people who talk to me privately about this sort of thing, that yeah. there are that there are absolute places where there's a lot of evidence, whether there's actually aliens, uh, I, I would never be able to say, but certainly they've captured vehicles vehicles sufficient to try and reverse engineer them. To some degree, I think they've succeeded, but if they succeeded as much as they sometimes claim they have some of the groups, I think we'd see more evidence of it in, when it gets into you know, country-to-country wars. It's difficult to say. I, I know that there is some vehicles out there that are at least on the way to getting to the advanced stage, but many of them are so far ahead of us that I have I've studied it, but I hesitate to say when we're going to. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. Put me out of business if they do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of agree with you. And it it was interesting. The black triangle thing is, is interesting too, because, you know, even though that's kind of the one I think of as well as maybe being uh, human sort of black projects or whatever. It's still amazing because they get so big and so silent and, you know, there's all these things that like you worked, uh, you know, and within silencing engines. So you must know how hard it is to, uh, to keep something that big, so quiet. Well, the beauty of that kind of system is that it, it really doesn't have any means to need to generate a noise because what they do is they, they, uh, with high intensity electromagnetic fields, you start stripping the, the air molecules from one of the electrons, and now you have an ion, which means it has a charge. If it has a charge, you just have to produce a repulsive charge against that, and it'll push it away. As it's pushing it away, it'll pull a lot of neutral molecules with it. So it can be it can be theoretically very very quiet by moving a very large amount of air at a low speed. However, for the most part, they don't seem to be moving air. That's why I think it's more likely likely to be an anti-gravity right right interesting gravity's a bitch man something ain't right there (laughs) so have you had military interest in your in your uh flying cars and stuff in your in your technology well yeah they've had a lot of interest in flying cars but but probably more interest in our unmanned versions. obviously we're always interested in particularly today we're so interested in drones yeah yeah and and we've delivered more unmanned vehicles to the military, I think, than any other company, including Lockheed. They went into, but they've gone into a black program uh, that you know, don't get any attention. So we really don't have a lot of opportunity to capitalize on it other than the contracts from the government that we've got to make this happen. And because we're a small company, relatively speaking, if, if, if once we show how things can be done, everybody tries to replicate it. Right. And while we have patents, it gives us some protection, but patents are only protectable to the extent that you have money, lots of money, to protect them. And that puts you at enormous disadvantage when you're dealing against the Lockheed of the world. So every time I'm asked to give a seminar or something at Lockheed or some other place, within six months I see them coming out and trying to replicate what I just talked about. Yeah. The nature of the business. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to do a detailed, you know, have that as part of your detailed marketing plan when you 
when it goes into the black budget thing, you can't really talk about, you know, exactly that's what right. exactly what you've sold to them. I know that's a, that's a problem, and and uh, so we, we for the most part we we have not got involved with the military on the on the sky car or the new arrow. We kept that out of that fold because we don't want to have it reach a point where we really can't push it forward. Uh, the Aerobots, there's there's dozens of different versions of that, so we have the opportunity to develop Aerobots for bridge inspection, which we did for the California Department of Highways or other applications. So there is the Skycar gets tied up or the New Era gets tied up. We would no longer have the opportunity to rush the civilian market, which is which we of course is driving us. It's not only a economic issue, it's a an emotional issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, almost a, almost a, an ethical, well, not ethical, but a moral, almost a moral thing for you, really. What, I could say. What do you, yeah, what do you, oh, what do, what do you think realistically is a date? Like when, when will, when do you think these things are going to start to be? In, well, there's nothing really use? technically holding them up. We we've demonstrated them. We haven't had all the safety features that we would have liked because we had economics involved. But we are now upgrading everything we have with the latest safety features, and so that's really kept us back over the last few years is not having sufficient capital. Uh, this is not a cheap technology. I mean, you're dealing with you have to have very skilled people. As I said earlier, I spent well over ten million dollars alone on, on software and hardware development. Um, of course, I was ahead of my time, and today I could buy it for a lot less right off the shelf. But that's the way life goes. Things don't move as quickly as you'd like, and you have to do it yourself somewhere along the line. Hmm. So we're, we're we're pushing the envelope. We need a, we need skilled people to to work with, and that costs money. And uh, I think we're very efficient, and that's why we can do what we're doing. But that still doesn't mean I've raised uh, in today's dollars over two hundred million dollars, uh, and I'm not a not a big company. Today I'm pretty small, relatively. Yeah, exactly, and that's still hard to to get it off the ground, so to say. Yeah, you've got to you've got to get past the FAA. Uh, fortunately, we've got a lot of things going for us there. Uh, the FAA is catching up with the more modern requirements. Uh, you notice that they they did allow drones to fly up to four hundred feet like that. That's a that's taken twenty years to get them to do that. But at the same time, they, we've talked to them, and they, I believe they're going to let us use the same aerospace up to 400 feet initially, uh, which is, you know, we can do a lot of fun things in 400 feet. And then if we go to the next level of the FAA, which we also think will be successful, where we get a subcategory of what's called the light sports aviation category, okay. then we'll be able to go to 80, 8,500 feet. Uh, and then, mm-hmm. of course, at a future point, when we're FAA certified, then we go up to the 25,000 feet, which is where it, where it operates most efficiently. In, in, what, in, what, in what way does it operate most efficiently up there? Well, what happens is, is that you, uh, you can't take off, obviously, if the air is as thin as it is on the ground. So you go up, as you go to higher altitudes, and you fly faster and faster, the air is getting thinner, so there's less drag on the vehicle. And, and whereas you would stall at, you know, 70 miles an hour at sea level, uh, you'd stall at, uh, you know, I'd have to, you'd probably stall at about 250 miles an hour or 225 or some other number 
at high altitude, but when you're up there, um, you don't have the drag because the air is thin. So you you are able to fly fast. Why jet planes, as you well know, fly thirty five thousand to forty thousand feet. Yeah, yeah. It's just that if the thin air is uh, now, of course, you've got other problems because your engine produces less power as you go to higher altitude. So you don't have stall. To, you have to supercharge or something like that to be able to keep the, keep the performance up. But we do that. We have a patent on a way to achieve that, that I think is going to have to work well. Does it come with a parachute? <laughs> well, we have parachutes as well. I mean, that's we think for the most part that's for psychological reasons. But you know, parachutes allowed the serious aircraft company to sell a lot of planes because the wives let the husbands buy a plane. So there's a, there's other reasons why you would put that in initially. And of course, the Sears airplane has saved a lot of lives with the parachute. So I could buy a sky car right now, and I'm allowed up to 400 feet. Well, you could button. No, no, I wouldn't say it could happen tomorrow, but the FAA seems to incline to accept that opportunity. Of course, we're going to have to demonstrate a level of comfort with them. I mean, they're not just going to let us do it without some approval process. But it won't be certification. FAA certification could cost me $50 million, $75 million. <laughs> FAA approval could be, uh, you know, 5 to $10 million. Uh, so it's a very different opportunity. And uh, the beauty is that you wouldn't have to have a pilot's license to have a pilot's certificate. You don't have to worry about going in for a medical every year. Uh, our vehicle is computer-controlled, and so skill is not a major factor as long as you operate in within the rules of the controlled airspace, like a driver's license, but other rules of, rules of the road that you need to take care of. But skill is off the... But there's less skill in buying, buying my vehicle than there is in driving a car. Mm, nice. Now you got Darren thinking. <laughs> I just, I'm just trying to picture all these people in Calgary driving around in sky cars and just fucking bumping yeah. into everything. <laughs> That's what most people first think about as the possible. But what you, what you got to understand that that the aerospace today is for the airliners, for example, it's very tightly controlled. They follow a beam of frequency and they stay on that line. And so, if you had an expanded system to that by maybe one or two orders of magnitude everybody would be flying on these virtual highways. And virtual highways, I can guarantee it costs a lot less than concrete laid down on the ground. So you can generate a huge network of virtual highways uh, as long as you have the computer power to do that. You can control every vehicle within that. If something goes wrong, they're just kicked out of that system and sent to the ground, uh, either with a parachute or landing vertically. So it's a, it's a, it's a world where you, you're going to go to a vertiport, maybe a few blocks from your home, maybe a couple of miles from your home. And uh, that may be a sound issue. If that's a sound, you could even take off from your home. And you just program your destination and you sit back and play computer games, read, or do whatever you want to do in the wave. The last thing we want is us controlling them. Or controlling the vehicle itself. Wow. So, okay. That's it. So, so that's what I was even, picturing. Like you're almost I... ahead of the Google cars. You, like you could, you could, Technically, be coming out the same time as Google's self-driving cars could be hitting the road. And well, their their job is you know, an order of magnitude more difficult than ours. You look up in the air, you know, you're not worrying about running into trees, people, or anything else. So, controlling the airspace is is so simple by comparison. You know, these commercial airliners today they they land for the most part automatic landing, 
they had this crash recently in San Francisco, and the ironic part of that crash is that the guy coming in had to practice. You're required to practice periodically, landing manually, so you keep your skills up, and he crashed the plane. If, if he would be coming in by computer, there's not a chance he would have crashed. So, you know, the human part of there is a weakness at that moment, but this is what we're used to, and we think that humans need to be there in case of emergency. Maybe they do. You should. Ju- you got to hook up with Google. They got lots of money. Well, I know they do. You I do. Have, but I, they don't. They, they. They. I tell you, it's very difficult for someone like me to get these people to pay attention. They've all got their own priorities. They probably, for the most part, don't take flying cars very seriously. So you go whizzing by their window. <laughs> well, what that would... may be what we have to do. We're, we're getting ready to do that. Yeah. Getting ready to put the new era back in the air with all the safety features. So, um, what what kind of when you say a pilot certificate, like what what would that entail? Well, it's, it's what we would call the day ground school, primarily, which tells you which you you're taught exactly what the rules are in the air. But if we are on a virtual highway, those won't even be necessary. But of course, we won't have all the virtual highways in place to start with, so people are going to have to know what they can and can't do. But there's enough built-in protective devices. We have transponders and all kinds of things in the vehicle that will keep you away from other vehicles automatically. Right. So it, it, there'll be a period of time when, when the human will be involved, but to a fairly small degree today. What, um, what's the price tag? Well, like anything else, it's very volume-sensitive. We've got pricing now ranging Two hundred fifty thousand to four hundred fifty thousand, uh, and but those prices will drop about forty percent for every order of magnitude increase. Those prices, by the way, for 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 like a hundred units uh, to a thousand units, you already automatically drop forty percent. If you do ten thousand, you drop another forty. You get down to the price of a of a quality automobile. We have to be up in the area of about a hundred thousand units a year. You know. A small fraction of what even one model of car company might be. So I wonder. So is that in place now? Like, I guess part of the FAA process wouldn't wouldn't involve. They would come up with some sort of standardized license for it. They have it right now. Well, the pilot certificate. I I mentioned the light sports aviation category. It's a unique category. They have it right now. You 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 buy a light sports aviation. Plane, it costs you maybe a hundred thousand dollars, and uh, it flies about one hundred and twenty-five miles an hour. Uh, and uh, all you need is a pilot certificate. Right. Wow. So, and then, so, sorry. So, what you're what you're picturing is kind of what I what I was picturing when I first heard about you years ago. Is is this little vertiport, as you call it? So you would potentially drive your sky car to this little vertiport, which could be a few miles away, and then take off vertically and fly horizontally for a couple hundred miles? Yeah, well, we have maximum range with gasoline of 750 with alcohol about 600. Right. We prefer alcohol, but yeah, I would, it would, uh, you could, I, I think at some point we have a patent on a, a way to keep the engine so quiet that it's, it's you can still hear it, but it's no louder than any car on the, on the street in any city. And uh, that, if we reach that level, then you probably could take off from the roof of your flat roofed house. I, I, I would have said driveway, but we're still going to generate a lot of air, and that may not be comfortable for the neighbors. 
in your yard at their expense. <laughs> yeah. So you just drive yeah. over, and then there's these landing ports, you'd have your Tim Hortons there, and you'd go gas up, and yeah. right, right. I'm going to get in the landing. If that happens, I'm getting in the landing port business right away. <laughs> Tim Hortons there. <laughs> we don't really need a landing port, of course, because it takes off at its own you know, diameter, so you could take off from anywhere, but you do have to deal with the issues of, we do have to deal with issues of noise uh, before it's really something you can take off from your home. And I guess airflow too, like you're saying, like... Yeah, that's, that, that you'd have to, as I said, I would say, although you could probably have a site, maybe, you know, in every city have a, depending on the size of the city, have a dozen sites it can easily take off from any park that you have except for Vertiport in any park, which would be wouldn't be any problem with it. Yeah, you'd almost think it would almost have to be something like that because that I, that even I guess if it's automatic, it would know where home was and it would just land you automatically. Oh it yeah, be like I mean, having it, your it, neighbor trying to park beside you and half cut. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's uh, but that's. In today's world, that's one good bit that I challenge. Uh, little model drones is impressive. How many rides have you been on? Well, there's many as uh, I can get, but of course, we're, we're always dealing with. Uh, in this, I mean, <laughs> they talk about test pilots being dangerous, but there's probably nothing more dangerous than a vertical takeoff aircraft because. With a with a airplane, a fixed wing airplane, you go down the runway, you get enough wind up, you can take off and sort of a stall or some engine failure that you don't handle properly. But options, the vertical takeoff aircraft, if you're hovering, uh, what are your options if something fails? You really have to have redundancy in engines, like we have eight engines. Redundancy in computers, we have eight computers, one able to fail. Uh, that makes it a different world where you, where the average person has a low probability of getting killed in this. But during the test phase that we're working in, there's many things we don't necessarily know about that may go wrong. We haven't, we've done, we've flown mostly with a tether overhead just in case. We've never had to use it, which is good. But if we, if something's gone wrong, which it certainly could have, that would have been the only thing that saved our life. Dropping. Hmm. Got to remember, you got about eight engines running around with fans and everything else. You got a lot of kinetic energy to dissipate it vertically. Yeah, yeah. Check yourself. So, do all of your designs, or most of your designs, have eight engines in, like the Skycar and the Nura? Yeah, statistically, we've gone through that. It's like taking a V8 engine, taking it apart, and assigning each computer to each one of the engines so that they operate like a V8 engine, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, one rotor can fail, uh, one sorry, one fan could fail, one engine could fail, one computer could fail, and uh, it would still survive. And actually, you can fail more than one, but as additional ones fail, the probability of becomes more severe. Yeah, yeah. But best yeah. to just land. As soon as your engine's first one goes <laughs> down, right. best to just head down. <laughs> That's our theory. If, it, if you've lost an engine, get the hell it's down on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, we, I want to... Uh... <clears throat> I'm just picturing, like, flying car high-speed chases and the cops are shooting out the engines and they're like still trying to get her and another engine down. 
I can't yeah, wait well, for the future. It's an important <laughs> issue for the military because, of course, there's always that desire to survive with See, I picture more of like an Uber scenario, like the new age taxi cab with, uh, you know, going from vertiport to vertiport, kind of taking people around. Well, I think, you know, that, that you hit upon something that I, I'd say is probably a very astute observation, because if you think about it, if you could develop an on-demand rather than schedule transportation system, and, and we can build these vehicles, we've got one vehicle, it's a 10,000 pound, we call it the Dakar 900. Uh, it carries 10 people, you could, uh, and it have a, you know, a cruise speed about 320 miles an hour, you could have this vehicle and it would be in an airport and you've got to get 10 people that they arrive to get in and gone. Uh, or you could be, for example, I don't think everybody's going to own these vehicles. I think they're going to lease them. Yeah, yeah. And we, we can build one to six passenger vehicles so you lease whatever you need uh, and uh, use it Effectively, but why? Why have a you know fifty thousand dollar vehicle in your garage? You don't need uh, more than you know. Because remember, you're not going to replace all the automobiles. Electric cars are still going to be running around you know, from point A to point B in the city for the most part. So cars are going to be here in large numbers. So do you need a full blown vehicle that's going to get you someplace at three hundred miles an hour on a regular basis? Uh, you don't probably going to choose to lease such a vehicle. Yeah. I want to I want to give a shout out to uh, our list one of our listeners Kurt V who's uh, who's been following you quite a bit he's excited to hear hear this chat and he's got he's got a bunch of questions and we've asked some of them already but I think the main question that people want to want to know about too before I forget is uh, your stock price has recently skyrocketed is there something going on there um, any new stuff happening? Well, it, you got to remember it's down from eight twenty five a share so. <laughs> <laughs> It's coming. It's gone a long way down. Back up, yeah, yeah. So it went down because we just uh, we got into a, a dispute with the SEC, and we had a very malignant uh, government official that made life miserable for us, and it drove it down without any real reason, other than once you start down and things like that, it's kind of death spiral. Yeah, so we've got. It's obvious we've got everything that needs to come back up, and so. Uh, we're we're on the way. I think one of the things I should point out that Paul International has developed this engine for the aircraft. But we right now right now we have letters of intent, conditional orders, and orders for three and a half million engines. Uh, that's a five billion dollar order we could ever fill it. Uh, so Mahler is not just dependent on the Skycar success. It's going to benefit very much from the engine being applied to recreational vehicles, hybrid cars, airplanes, uh, any number of other applications. Wow. So is that is that Freedom Motors then? Or? That's right. It's becoming a public company here in the next, uh, I would say, probably in the next 90 days. Nice. Okay. Mahler's going up, I think, because it recognizes that, that Freedom Motors is going to be an important part of its success. And people may be reluctant to invest in flying cars. Uh, but they would be much more realistic investing in a company that's going to be producing huge numbers of engines to its exclusive uh, ally, Freedom Motors. So you plan to buy out Freedom Motors? We own Freedom no, Motors. Oh, you own it yeah, already? Yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it's, it was spun off when we went public with Smaller International in 19, 2001. Freedom Motors was spun off under the hands of the existing stockholders. And uh, it's been, been doing R&D since then. It's something in the area of about $40 million, getting the rotary engine to the point where it's 
demonstrated in uh, jet skis, uh, all-terrain vehicles, uh, jet boats, all these aerobots that I mentioned to you that we delivered to the government, uh, they only were possible because of the engine. So the engine creates a whole bunch. We put one, for example, on a ductive down on the back of a skier, and he was coming up the hills as quickly as it came down. Uh, we put another couple of them on a little lightweight boat, and it was going down a creek near us at about 80 miles an hour. So there's, there's, this, is, this engine makes a whole bunch of products uh, viable that otherwise wouldn't be. It's, 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 uh, I just love the engine. I have to give accolades to Dr. Felix Wanker. As we spent 30 years, Nonstop until we got to the engine to operate. Wow, that's amazing! Yeah, that was another another question from our listener. Actually, it was when can we buy a motor from Freedom Motors? And it sounds like it's already happening. Well, it, it's not, we aren't selling them yet uh, because we won't be in full production till the end of this year. Right, so, right, yeah, 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 yeah. But that'll but, also but, that'll also help your 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 Mueller International business too. The more this engine is out there performing well and giving people confidence, then they, it'll be easier to look at the sky car as a as a real viable technology. Yeah, in particular, the interesting part of that is the economy of scale because we probably couldn't sell enough sky cars to get the engine prices way down. Ah, yeah. But if you're building engines at that level, then of course the engine price will come down at about more than 50% of the cost of the sky car or the new era is the engine. Right, right. So getting the engine cost down is uh, is going to be the, the critical factor. Huh. That's, that's fascinating. Race, Grand America, race, fly car. <laughs> where, where do you see uh, the company in, in 10 years then? Well, I'm sure at some point we will join forces with some aerospace company that rather than try to steal it from us, join us to buy it. <laughs> yeah. Don't know what they choose to end up doing, um, but uh, we're, I'm not. I bootstrapped Supertrap from nothing to a hundred million dollar sales uh, over a period of time. But it took me, it took me ten, I would say more like fifteen years of my life to do it, and I, I don't want to do that again. Right now, I recognize that uh, we have the technology. Other companies have the, the automobile people have the manufacturing capability. They know how to make things produce cheaply. And so, obviously, that's what we're going to end up. We've, we've had everybody come to our plant, BMW, Mercedes, Toyota, Ford. I even gave a talk at the international, uh, the biannual uh, meeting of Ford Motor in Switzerland. So they're listening, and they'll, they'll be there. And, of course, they'll probably end up uh, running it. I'm not that interested at this point in my time pulling the technology. I just want to see it happen. Yeah, yeah, that's such a... I like that. It's such a... A, a nice goal to have, you know. It's not about all about the money and the fame and all that. It's just you want to get this technology out to people, right? That's good. Yeah, well, I'm I'm in a life extension, and I've been for some time because this is not nearly as quickly to the to the home plate as I'd hoped. So I'm do you, playing do you, a racquetball and taking all kinds of vitamins and everything else. <laughs> sure, I'm still in good health here twenty years. From now. Do you have a successor? Like, do you have a, a good team below you right now? I yeah, I, I've had uh, varying teams. I've had as many as forty engineers working with me at one point. Uh, we have a half a dozen good people working with us at the moment. We're in a fundraising mode, ready uh, to move to the next level. But I think we're in a good position to, to raise money. Uh, it's, it's amazing how much attention flying cars have got recently. 
and uh, together with the fact that this FA drone thing is something so I think we're very fortunate at this time, at least, that, that these two things are current uh, together, the openness of the F- by the FAA to, to make something happen. I mean, they genuinely seem to be interested in in uh, this kind of technology and making it happen. I think their their hand must be forced at this point now with all the drones being developed for commercial applications. They, I think they have to get on board with, and do, make something for this uh, as far as regulations go, right? Because otherwise it's oh, just going to... Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we I've been on a, a program for years to try and get something to happen along these lines, and then Amazon comes along and yeah. a few other big companies, and all of a sudden, boom, they've got the rules in place. I think it's incredibly exciting because 400 feet, as a starting point, 500 feet is the second level, uh, is, is going to keep me going for the rest of my life. That's great. So I can get a little drone and fly at 400 feet. Yeah. That's what I can yeah. do? Is that well, the same in Canada? Yeah, and of course, for your listeners, just to make it real simple for them, they just have to put Skycar on their internet. They'll get 400,000 uh, articles on Skycar uh, on the internet. So, uh, that's easier than say Mala.com. This is Skycar Media. Our website will come up, so they can. It's easier to remember Skycar than Mala.com. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, this a be- it's a beautiful looking design too. I remember it's it stayed the same right since you guys first uh, first did the Skycar a while back. But it, it definitely pretty, looks pretty, pretty cool. Pretty much, yeah. It's it's there's been some changes. Uh, the wing is bigger now, but it folds in a way that. Reduces the still to an automotive size, so it could be parked in your garage or driven on the street. But by making the wingspan greater, holding it, we think a pretty clever way. Uh, we've been able to get better range out of it, which is important. You want to get good mileage. You can have really tiny wings and you go like a bat out of hell, but you, you're going to also be eating a lot of gas in the process. We've got now to where we believe we can produce about 100 passenger miles per gallon. Uh, 25 miles per gallon in a four-passenger vehicle or 50 miles per gallon in a two-passenger vehicle or 100 miles per gallon in a one-passenger Yeah, that's interesting. Make sure the gas light comes on good and early. (laughs) You don't want to be gliding in on those? (laughs) If you you don't want to glide in on this, you don't want a dead stick this in. You'd have to be a damn fine fighter pilot come in because you'd have to come in at about 140 miles an hour if you get sick. So you, you just fly along and up to the parachute. So I, I do have a technical question about that. So you're flying along in your Skycar 400 and and you're, you're basically going horizontal and just like these big, you know, army VTOLs you see or whatever. So you're going to slow down. Your, your, your engines are going to start tilting slowly as as you start slowing down and then to the point where you're going slow enough to start uh, going down ver- uh, vertical? Yeah, you, you bring it to stop. But remember, you, you, you the way you do it is you, you drop the power off and you pull the nose up. And right. you just have huge drag. At, I mean, if you want to stop quickly, I mean, if you want to get your maximum range out of the vehicle, you, you do it very carefully. As Francis just described, you want to stop very quickly, you pull the nose up, pull, you pull it up vertically if you want to and you'll you you will come you will decelerate at about one and a half G's. Wow. And then you bring the nose back down and land vertically. But normally you would glide in when you slowly rotate the nacelles 
come horizontal to vertical, and uh, the end just land in. With the, as the cells get vertical, they do create a lot of drag too. So they'll they'll help slow you down, like drag brakes, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you land and pull into your garage. <laughs> Just come screeching in. Right. Well, that's, that's if they let you land on the top of your house. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So is there anything else that you, that you want to mention? Or Darren, did you have a question here too? Oh, I have a couple more of Kurt's. Okay. Um, if you could do it all over again, what would you change? That's a tough I one. I would make one major decision from a business point of view. In 1989, when I flew the New Era, I would have probably stuck with it. Of course, I didn't know at that time I was going to have some nasty official with SEC make my life so miserable. But but it's, but knowing what I know now that that was going to happen, I would have stuck with the new era, brought it to to its marketability, and then gone on with the sky car. Of course, in the process, I would have you know had the credibility and been able to raise the money to speed up the sky car into the market. The route I chose of going to the sky car because theoretically I was funded at that time on paper and I didn't necessarily have to stay with the new era as our primary goal. But the new era is not a fast machine. It's, it's, it's going to be hard place to go 100 miles an hour and probably more like a 75 mile an hour vehicle. That's not going to change people's lives like 300 miles an hour. Would. Right. So we, we, I got off on that track and that, that's one thing I would have changed business. Other than that, Quite frankly, I, I obviously I made a number of technical, technically wrong decisions along the road that cost me a lot of money. That's the nature of this business. We're going to make mistakes. It costs money. But, yeah. uh, those were relatively minor. They're expected, but the decision to go to the sky car sooner rather than later was probably a business decision that slowed down this whole program by perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand why, though. I mean, that's, uh, you're right. I mean, who knows? Maybe the new era wouldn't have got as much attention as, as the sky car in the end. But, I mean, look at the, Darren, take a look at the pictures there of the of the sky car he's talking about, right? The original one. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool looking. Looks fast. It's fast. I mean, it's got a top speed close to 400 miles an hour. Of course, you'd be burning gas like that. Yeah, yeah. How much gas does it put in the tank? Gas is uh, heavy. About a forty-gallon 40, 40 tank to get to uh, to get to seven hundred fifty miles. Um, so forty gallon, that'd be one hundred and fifty liters or so. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very close to that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that. So, but that's a full. That's that's in the plan. But if we end up with a little more weight than we think, we'll end up in a production vehicle trying to end up with a certain weight, we may have to back that up a little bit. But unlikely to, it's unlikely we're going to get less than about four inches. Better yeah. than a lot of cars. Yeah. 400, sorry, what's that, 450 yeah. miles? Yeah. So that'd yeah. be like yeah. 650 or so. That'd be almost, Lumpers, you're closing right. in on 700 kilometers almost, 600 right. for sure. That's not bad. So you could go to Edmonton back and it would cost you... 150 bucks. But you could go yeah. there and back in like fucking. In 20 minutes or 20 minutes. half hour, yeah. Huh. Yeah, one of my favorite cities, Edmonton, Calgary, too, of course. I love that. I love that city. Edmonton, too, really? <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of my friends, 
know that because I, a lot of my friends were from Edmonton, a very large number of the people going to what we call PITA at that time, Technology Arts, Southern, Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. So they came, I would say, a very large percentage of Ed, or got to know a lot of, a lot of people from my good friends are still living in Edmonton. Was there a Nate there then too? Because now I think it's Edmonton or right outside Edmonton has the Northern Alberta Institute. Yeah, of Technology. no, there, there, there was, uh, I, there was no Northern CITA, uh, only the Central Provincial Institute of Technology and Art was only in Silicon. Same school as yeah. my wife. Hmm. Yeah. I'll have to tell her that. Incredible, incredible school. This is exciting stuff, man. I, I think it, uh, years down the road, you know, this is, people are going to look at this and, and think, wow, this is, this is like one of the first sort of sky cars, you know, going and, and it's going to be amazing to look back and see the, the start of all this. Yeah, it, it's going to, it's going to come. It's interesting. I mean, I'm not going to be the, if there's anybody else could push it along, I suppose. Um, they may not be as crazy enough to spend the sort of time I spent, but, uh, they're still going to be using, I believe, uh, either anti-gravity or rotary engine. That's all I can tell you with some certainty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so is there, is there a lot of competition for you out there? Like other people in the other parts of the world that are building like the European version of the sky car or the Chinese no, version? No, they, again, if they don't have our engine, they don't have any chance of making this success. They, there's a lot of flying cars, as you know, where they're, where they take the wings off or they fold the wings back or they fold the, fold the wings up. Yeah. And, and they use their airport and, yeah, and that's amazing. I mean, it's it's in, in many ways, believe it or not, is is more complicated than some of the things we do. At least elements of that. But if you can't take off vertically, it really it's a novelty. But you know, the damn things cost as much as go buy an airplane and a Ferrari. Yeah, for uh, less than that, and, and you're going to go a lot faster with with both of them. So, uh, and I think they're 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 quite mechanically complex in terms of that wing. I would be concerned about all those holes fading at some point. I, I would be, I think vertical takeoff with a parachute is still a far safer way to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I like the amphibious ones too. <laughs> so you need both. I, I, I'd like to see all three of a car with wings that fold up and then a little like rudder that can come down too. like Jane, that'd be something James Bond would have. I swear. Well, the beauty of vertical takeoff is <laughs> something fails. Oh, you, especially if you go to our kind of redundancy, you have second chance. You know, airplanes don't always offer second chance. I think airplanes are still safer, though. Like, airplanes are way safer than cars. I'm not sure what the numbers are off the top of my head, but it's pretty well, yeah, staggering. No, per, per, per mile in the air, uh, I, that's true. I think even even light industry cars are still not as safe. Uh, of course, commercial airlines are very, very much safer. I, I don't know the latest statistics on, on passing airplanes. may not be that great, but in terms of the really sophisticated aeronautical technology, it's, it's they hit a car's safety. Hey, why haven't we come up with why isn't airplanes being developed with big windows? Like, why are the, why are we still in this day and age with the technology we have flying in airplanes with tiny little windows? Well, a window is a is a. You remember when you uh, make a big window, you took you take away structure, right? I mean, yeah, but with the glass, with the with the type of component or uh, the materials, not, none of the glass is really going to even even uh, some of the strong 
of the power to weight uh, or strength to weight that aluminum has. They use some really exotic materials today in terms of the strength of the aluminum. Right. Glass would never, ever be able. I mean, it just means you have to build a lot of structure around that area. So it's, uh, and then it weighs a lot too. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it, it yeah, they, they try to make it as small as possible. Uh, those windows You're lucky you even get a window grab. <laughs> I always and like the window set. advocated getting rid of windows altogether because the planes would be a lot lighter. But, uh, people don't like that idea. Yeah. That, would the, they be that much lighter? You just got to tell people how much less per ticket. How much less per ticket. Yeah. Yeah. We take out the windows, 50 bucks less a flight. Sold. Money makes it too. Money well, soon we'll just be putting virtual windows on there anyways, like a 4K wall. The wall will be like a 4K TV screen. You can just basically look at it. With a camera on the outside yeah, exactly. of the exactly. <laughs> I, I think you're right. I, there's been discussions along those. Oh. Uh, so is there anything else that you, you feel like we missed or that you want to mention, Paul? No, we, we've covered it all, and anybody that, that feels they've not had answers to questions, so I think they have a very complete website. And as I said, they just have to go to Skycar. Uh, they can also go and buy stock in Mall International and LER. Uh, obviously, people who bought it a month ago made 10 times their money today. So we hope that if you buy it today, you make 10 times your money tomorrow. What's a share worth? Well, it was right, because of some of the variable debt we had to get into. It got down to like a penny a share, you know, 12 cents. There's every reason to believe that if we do what we plan to do over the next uh, two months along with our engine business, that someday, maybe within the next couple of years, we'll back to our 850 a share. Wow, that's great. I think we're going to have to buy some. I think yeah. America should buy some molar shares. Yeah. <laughs> we got some money in the PayPal account. I wonder, can you buy shares of stocks with PayPal? <laughs> well, probably. I'm always raising money. I'm never... Because we don't sell shares, we came up with a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be cool to have on the wall. Yeah, we should just do that. Yeah. yeah have it on the, in the studio. Yeah, I appreciate you chatting a little bit about UFOs and stuff there, too. It's great that you're open-minded enough to actually be acknowledging the evidence and, and, and talking to people that are, you know, having these experiences and recognizing that when you're open about the stuff, a lot of people come forward with their stories. Yeah, you'd have to be pretty close-minded after you get these people telling up personal letters, stories. I mean, to a party about two months ago, and this lady was there and told me about this UFO that came over her house, and uh, she couldn't start her car, and lights went out, and oh. went out. I told her exactly why that happened, because <laughs> with, our re- with our reverse engineering, we were able to determine exactly what electromagnetic field would do. First thing it would do is it would knock out your lights. They have the highest resistance. Then it would knock. No, sorry, the other way around. The lowest resistance, yeah. And then the then the what what electromagnetic fields do is they increase the resistance of wires. That's a fact. That's the key element. So if you get a this electromagnetic field, the first thing it hits is your ignition system stops the car. The vehicle gets closer. The next thing that happens, the lights go out. And then the third thing that happens is we can't start the engine. We can't turn it over. All uh, she went through all three of those modes of over her. Uh, a lady, 45 years old, who got very shocked by the experience. But it's so perfect, uh, dovetailing into what we learned in our study. Yeah. Uh, 
that uh, you just have to be a fool not to not to accept the truth. It, it's it's so funny though because we're we're still stuck in this paradigm of this our culture that that really the the reality is that people won't believe those stories that there's a whole you know skeptical community and almost the you know the guys that are kind of controlling things in a way and it's just it's still it's still denial you know if we can't uh measure it throw it in this little bucket over there and ignore it well the government's being a party to that whole thing too because they do darn well they're real i mean there's no question about that yeah yeah you know on the inside with those that i have had relationships with people on the inside they accept that, that these people are doing it but they they just they pass out all this disinformation and i can't I, almost if they think we're going to panic I don't think they're going to panic knowing that there is, in fact, alien visited. Because, quite frankly, 50% of Americans apparently believe that they, we are being visited. Yeah, yeah. I think we're past the panic stage as well. Yeah. Hmm. I might still panic. <laughs> you wouldn't panic there. Yeah, and I guess uh, I seen uh, there's a there's a molar couple molar Twitter pages too. We'll link to those in the show notes. Um, are you on Facebook? Do you do you spend much time interacting with yeah, any fans on on Facebook? Well, I I, uh, I I don't spend that much myself personally, but I have a marketing director that tries to keep up on those questions and answers. And I do I do respond to a lot of people, but up to this point, if I get a letter from somebody, I will often. Try to respond at least to some of our literature, make it get a better Yeah, that's great. Right on. Well, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a fascinating chat, and and you know, wish your company and and you all the best. Thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, hey, again, remember that go to Skycar and spend the rest of your life reading to the four hundred thousand references. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of redundancy, but uh, there is one particular article that people might want to seriously look at, and that's the uh, article that uh, the online article that appeared in the Huffington, Huffington Post. Okay. It's oh yeah, Jack to, sent us the links to those. That 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 I think, and you might be interested in my talk I gave to Ted, the Ted series. Oh. Those together, I think you'll find kind of interesting. Yeah, well, I'll specifically link to those in, in the show notes as well, so people can uh, people can check it out. This will go all around the world, and so people will be looking up the sky car from everywhere. That's great. Appreciate that. Yeah, no and problem. We will be shareholders. Yeah. <laughs> Once we figure out how to buy shares of PayPal. What do you just look up? Molar International? Uh, yeah, if you've got a broker or you can go to sport, uh, any of the... We do not have not a everybody, Not everybody's going to deal with our company, because when you're down in the area... You. Yeah, that's fair. A lot of people don't like a lot of things like you. And always find them. If you go to our website, I think we give the names of our lead market makers. Great, awesome. that's great. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dr. Moore. You're welcome. Okay, you. take yeah, care. Good luck. Have a good night.
And welcome back to the Great America Show. That was our chat with Paul. What a great, what a great show that was. Thank yeah. you, Paul. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Um, big thanks to Jack over at uh, Moeller International for setting that up. And thanks uh, to our Kurt. Yeah, Kurt for for uh, keep reminding us to get Paul on. You know, it's interesting because I was following Moeller so long ago, right? And you wonder what these guys are like, right? Like they, they have to be passionate guys that are making these like technological advances and stuff like flying cars. Like, you know, a lot of people, he's put decades into this research and his, and making this happen. Right. And, but you wonder what it's going to be like to chat with a guy, right? Yeah. But he's super open-minded, you know, we're able to chat with him about UFOs and all kinds of stuff. And it's just a pleasure to be able to talk to people that have made these really successful companies you know, and leading edge technologies in a lot of ways. And yet they're so easy to talk to and, and great to chat with. So I want to thank Paul for coming on. Yeah. Come back anytime and hopefully Graham will have his flying car soon. Maybe I'll just buy one of those we engines a, for the skiing, go up to ski hill. Remember you was talking about that? That's crazy shit. We still have a piss jug in a flying car. I <laughs> <laughs> won't let that one go, eh? <laughs> How could I? How could I? That's like I will if I'm flying in minus thirty. <laughs> I, I I'd assume they must have some sort of a system, right? They'd have to think about oh, that. Right. We should have asked them about oh, that. Oh yeah, how are you going to go to the bathroom? Because you can't just land. Yeah, that's a tough one, eh? Maybe there's just a shoot out the bottom <laughs> or something. It's raining. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. There's a, probably some sort of lavatory. It's a lavatory. No, there isn't a lavatory. It's just a seat. It just a, it's like a car. There's maybe no, it's like a little You can't just get pad. up and walk around in there. No, but maybe it like just comes in. No, this is. No? You have to wait till you land. You yeah, have to, that's program it in an emergency stop. Because Graham's got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Or you just have a Gatorade <laughs> jug. <laughs> the big mouth Gatorade jug. Keep telling yourself that. <laughs> So yeah, big thanks to Paul for coming on. Uh, who do we got coming up next week? Next release, I guess, will be... Uh, Richard Barrett? Yeah, that's right. Richard Barrett. We're going to pop out an extra episode next week, too. Yeah, Richard, yeah, we'll, we have to do that. We're starting to get behind again. So Richard Barrett invented, Barrett invented a way to measure consciousness. It's pretty interesting. So he's he's got uh, all kinds of metrics for different countries and cultures and how to measure consciousness which is kind of like a cultural awareness i guess is the way he's uh he's doing it pretty interesting and then after that we probably released niles heckman oh yeah that's right and this uh tuesday we're going to be recording with um dr gordon freeman about hidden stonehenge he's a, a fascinating book about uh, the ancient structures in alberta here right in our backyard i might go check them out actually this week we'll i don't see. know if you can get in buddy but you can try I can do anything. Why couldn't I get in? Because <laughs> it's uh, it might be like uh, protected. Yeah, protected now because you know the white man almost destroyed it. Motherfuckers, <laughs> always wrecking shit. <laughs> yeah, he he kind of gets into that in his book a little bit, right? It's really interesting because he spends months and like uh, eight, like at these sites waiting for the sunrise and the sunset, and there's clouds and when he's in there with his with his RV in the middle of the prairies and the snow, like super dedicated guy, like all these guests we have, man, they're dedicated to their passion. It's 
It's crazy. Well, you did some dedication to your passion this week. What was Just that? broke your back fucking moving 300-pound <laughs> freezer panels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Hammer in and crowbarring and, yeah, making stuff fit. That fucking spray foam. It's going to take me a week to get the spray foam out of my hair and yeah. my fucking hands and yeah. ears. But yeah, uh, I think that's about it. Uh, yeah. Sign your friends up for the newsletter, grammarica.ca slash news. Sign yourself up for the newsletter. Check out the backstage. I've got it updated almost fully, so we have all of June pretty much booked. So you can check out who we're chatting with and what uh, time and dates they are. And there's a little section at the bottom of the backstage, which is basically who's going to be released next. So who we've already chatted with and recorded and who's coming out to be released. So you kind of know who's coming out to be released and then who's going to be uh, recorded. And you can join us in the chat room there on Mixler.com slash Gramerica. That's M-I-X-L-R.com slash Gramerica. Yeah. Uh, and of course, support the show. Um, we always need your support. Gramerica.ca slash support. Uh, help us pay the bills. Um, thanks for the voicemails. For freezer units. Oh yeah, voicemails. Shit, we we're gonna play Fletcher's. You're still gonna put put that through uh, in the break. So. Okay. So yeah, we would have you would have heard a voicemail if you're still listening to this outro. <laughs> and thank you very much. <laughs> okay, guys, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Skies papers are so high Alice's cars playing there I can see that that is so high